2: Hello and welcome back to the first Tonight Show of 2023. Minister for Health Stephen Donnelly calls for all hands on deck as hospitals deal with record-breaking trolley figures.
3: Everything that can be done must be done. That includes accessing all available private capacity. Um, We need to see senior decision-makers in over the weekends for the next few weeks uh, in, in at night times.
2: Ministers are warned that the state faces a shortfall of more than 14,000 beds for Ukrainian refugees in the next three months. And later, ski resorts are forced to close due to lack of snow, as Europe is hit with unseasonably warm weather. Do join the conversation online with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag TonightVMTV. There were 838 patients left waiting on trolleys in emergency departments as of this morning, according to the INMO. This number is the second highest on record, exceeded only by yesterday's record-breaking figure of 931. Minister for Health Stephen Donnelly has acknowledged that people will die due to the risks posed by overcrowding in emergency departments, saying that the current situation is a perfect storm. Well, here to discuss is consultant physician geriatrician and clinical lead of the Irish National Stroke Programme, Professor Ronan Collins, Fine Gael Senator, Martin Conway, Sinn Féin TD, David Cullinan, Professor of Health Systems in DCU, Anthony Staines, the clinical editor for the medical independent, Priscilla Lynch, and via Skype, Industrial Relations Officer with the INMO, Tony Fitzpatrick. But first tonight... A little earlier, I spoke to Angel Wall, a young woman who has been experiencing firsthand the crisis in our hospitals. Uh, Angel, you might just begin by describing to us why it was that you had to go to A&E in the first place.
4: Um, Yes, so I had um, a brain surgery on the 11th of November here in Beaumont. And since then, I've actually had two more surgeries. Uh, the last one was on the 22nd of uh, December. Um, and unfortunately, since I had the surgery and, and was le- I was left home on the 23rd, and since then um, I've had a spinal a cerebral spinal fluid leak and a kind of a large swelling on the side of my head. Now, I had those when I was in hospital too, but they just continued to get worse. So uh, I contacted Beaumont and... Because a cerebral spinal fluid leak is kind of serious, they suggested that I go directly to uh, the nearest Amy uh, to be referred to them as kind of a quicker way and more comfortable to be in an ambulance than, in you know, get driven up in a car.
2: So you were brought in an ambulance to Beaumont Hospital in Dublin. How long before you were admitted to a
4: bed on a ward? So um, I think it was 18 hours in total, um, which obviously isn't as long as others have waited for beds or even waited in the ED department. But the whole reason I was sent up to Bowman from Waterford was actually to get admitted to a ward, but it was just that there was no beds available on a ward. So I had no choice but to kind of go to the ED department. And um, the paramedics that brought me actually had to wait for over two hours as well because they actually didn't have a trolley in the ED department for me.
2: So at that point, you were just waiting in an ambulance outside of the hospital?
4: I, the ambulance crew actually came in um, in with me because they were under the impression that they were just kind of going to drop me and go. Um, but because they had a trolley, they had me on a trolley. And um, they kind of had to wait with me with the trolley. Um, so yeah, I think it was two and a half hours, and um, that they waited there.
2: And how were you feeling throughout all of this angel? I mean, were you being checked by nurses
4: and doctors throughout this time? Well, I spoke to my doctors after a couple of hours of being there, but to be honest with you, it was so busy and there were so many patients that although the staff were doing absolutely everything they could, there just wasn't enough of them to kind of give every patient attention, if that makes sense. Um, You know, they'd kind of be dealing with you and they'd get called away to someone else or something else or A couple of times I'm asked for medication or things like that and something else would happen. So that would kind of get pushed aside. Um, But the staff really were, you know, doing all that they could. Um, And after the first, after a good while, I suppose, um, I was given a pillow, which was good, um, because obviously with the swelling and stuff on my head um, and I had no pillow for the first maybe... 15 hours that I was there it was very uncomfortable and you know so they were trying to do what they could but they were limited as well with what they could do if that makes sense.
2: And you mentioned Angel just how busy it was and we've heard stories of trolleys being parked outside nurses stations rows of them people being put into you know yeah. random closed off corridors within hospitals and um, just to try and accommodate people in somewhere a little bit more private what did you witness?
4: Yeah, well, I was actually on one of the beds uh, beside the nurse's station and I didn't count. um, When I arrived, I actually turned my head because of the pain that I had in my head. But I was on one of the beds uh, beside the nurse's station. All the cubicles were full and the beds were like, I mean, there was probably a couple of inches between them. Um, And yeah, it was, I described it as uh, something like what you'd see on the news in, like in a war zone or, you know, what you'd see in a movie, like the beds were so close that if I put out my two hands, I could hold hands with the patients beside me. And obviously a lot of the patients that were there, I don't know what exactly that they had, but a lot of them were coughing and and things like that. So to be honest with you, I was actually nervous of picking up some kind of a virus or um, an infection from the people near me. And obviously I have a lot going on with my own health. So that was a concern of mine as well while I was there. I suppose,
2: Angel, this was just one interaction that you've had with the health system in Ireland, but you have been dealing with them for years because of your condition. What has your wider experience been?
4: To be honest with you, I have had, a, I would say, a negative experience with the healthcare system. Um, as I've mentioned, like my doctors and my medical team have always done what they could, but it kind of gets to a certain point where their hands are tied um, in the likes of waiting for MRI scans or for my surgery I waited over a year and a half. And then when it came to actually getting a bed, I kind of had to start contacting other people I'm kind of complaining to be honest with you until I got a bed Um, and then even when I got the letter to tell me that uh, I had a date for my surgery it said based on bed availability so that was an anxiety I had for a a good while as well you know trying to plan my life around getting the surgery and then you might arrive on the day and they don't have a bed for you you know so that was I was nervous about that too. Uh, Um, Look, Angel, I can see that
2: you're in hospital at the moment. I know you're speaking to us from uh, a toilet cubicle to try and get a little bit of privacy. Uh, I wish you a speedy recovery, and I really appreciate you speaking to us on the programme this evening.
4: Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Rona Collins, I want to go
2: to you first as a person working on the front line over the last couple of weeks in our hospital. Uh, You're in Tala here in Dublin. What has your experience been?
5: Um, I was on call as it happened last night by coincidence. And I think what Angela and I wish Angela well in her recovery, but I think what Angela is describing is probably pretty uh, common experience for many people in some respects. uh, She's lucky. She's, I suppose, in the sense that she can articulate this very well. There are many people who are a lot frailer and more vulnerable who can't articulate the experiences they're having. Uh, Listen, frankly, it's shocking. It's appalling. It's a failure of the health service. I work in the HSC, it's personally embarrassing um, as a consultant to see that this is the state of our health service. I would go further and say that you know the minister acknowledges that maybe people might die but there's many more people who will not make the recovery that they should make because the initial front door experience is bad. Uh, older people develop acute brain failure and delirium uh, characterized by acute confusion, uncharacteristic aggressive outbursts or maybe withdrawal from reality Uh, We start the processes of older people losing their muscle mass by confining them in spaces where they can't mobilise. We start promoting incontinence as being the norm. And we effectively actually degrade human uh, spirit Uh, by the way our acute services are configured. It's shocking. Um, And the saddest thing about it, I think really is that it was predictable. And the IAMO, of which I am a member, but I'm also a consultant. I'm also a doctor. I work in the HSE. We knew this was coming. Uh, in 1980s, we had 30% more beds than we have mm. now, and our population was two-thirds of what it is then. So we knew this was coming.
2: Um, I just want to go back to, I suppose, people's experiences in the mm. here and now, because we hear so much about people either sitting in ambulances waiting to get into the ED, or sitting in the ED, or lying on the ED, waiting to yeah. get admitted to a ward. But as Angel said there, she got into a ward, but lay outside a nurse's station until mm. she got into uh, a cubicle. So it wasn't just her first experience in the ED, it's actually when you get up to the ward that people are not necessarily getting the care and the attention that they deserve because the nurses and doctors quite simply are working beyond
5: all capacity. So We're we're very stretched in the service. Now, I know the focus is on the emergency departments because that is where, if you like, due to the lack of beds, people are being confined and I use that term or corralled might be another term. We're inventing new patient locations by the minute in all our emergency departments. Uh, Nursing waiting trolley, 1.3. Sub waiting area, seat 2.3. You know, Most emergency departments have been chatting to colleagues or in chaos. There's notes everywhere. It's a very dangerous environment, not only for patients, but actually for the staff working there because you can't practice safe medicine there. And then of course, the solutions that move people out of the emergency department up onto the wards in order to create the space. But that is shifting the risk uh, because many of our uh, wards at this stage are understaffed, the staff don't exist. Uh, people are absolutely exhausted after the pandemic. There's a high rates of sick leave with the COVID as well because people are being told not correctly, obviously, not to come to work if you've got a respiratory tract infection. But there's a huge knack on effect here. But I would go back to the current state of crisis is very, very yeah. bad. The sad thing is that it was predictable and we didn't plan for it.
2: OK, I want to go to Tony Fitzpatrick because one in there spoke about sort of the chaos within our hospital system at the moment and the difficulties and the frustrations that frontline workers, nurses and doctors must be feeling because they're just simply not able to provide the care that they're trained to do. What are you hearing from your uh, members? Is this right across the country, Tony?
6: Absolutely. And I heard what Angel was saying there about her experience. And indeed, this we must remember in the last 36 hours, 17,000 or seven, seventeen hundred and sixty-nine people have suffered the indignity just in the last 36 hours have been seen in an emergency department, been deemed sick, in need of a hospital admission, in, in need of further care, and they've continued to be looked after on chairs, on trolleys, in overcrowded conditions within emergency departments, which is not conducive to delivery of self, self-care. And I think the, the, the key thing our members are saying, they feel abandoned and let down by the government and by the HSE. As Ronan pointed out there, this was completely predictable. There's nothing happening now at the moment that wasn't predicted. There's a high number of viruses circulating predicted. There's unprecedented presentations Predicted. Um, you know, I've heard uh, government ministers uh, talk today about we've recruited uh, 16,500 additional staff, but have completely left out the context that that only really brought us back to the staffing levels we had back in 2008. And the population and the demand for the service has grown significantly since then. So and our members, nurses working in emergency departments tonight, Kira, are sick to death of hearing the government and the HSE commentate on the problem. What they need to hear from the government and from the HSE is what the immediate solutions they're going to put in place tonight and tomorrow for the next two weeks to alleviate the stress and problems that they're dealing with. It's dangerous for patients within the emergency departments. But one thing that's distressing to me, and I spoke to my father this morning, who said he'd never go through, near a hospital based on all the stories he's hearing in the media. Now, he's fit and healthy and he's in his 70s. But the reality is this, that there are people at home that are sick that may be having a stroke, having a heart attack, have a broken leg, that are thinking twice about going to our hospitals. That's not good enough, and they're hearing that because the HSE and the government are saying, avoid emergency departments, go to your GP. Where there's a lack of GPs and a lack of practice nurses, we need to actually double the number of practice nurses currently working within the system go to pharmacies, that won't solve a heart attack, an appendicitis, a cystitis, whatever it is. So there are people that are genuinely sick that need hospital care, and they're being frightened off attending emergency departments because of the current situation. And it must be very difficult too,
2: sorry, to cut across you for your members, because members of the public who are attending hospitals are probably feeling scared, frustrated, and they must be venting a lot of
6: that on your members. Absolutely, and we see a massive increase in assault on nurses, And no doubt. This is a powder keg environment. You have people that in emergency departments, so Beaumont was referenced there, and indeed I worked in Beaumont many years ago as an emergency department nurse, and I know that department well. The reality is that they will see 180 to 200 patients per day. 70 to 75% of those patients will be seen, treated, and will be discharged home. But it's the 25 to 30% that need a hospital bed that have a difficulty getting to that okay. bed. And then and this is not, Bowman is one of the better performers um, with regards to patient flow. But the reality is that these patients end up in an emergency department, being wheeled out of cubicles, back into cubicles. They, um, there's right. no continuity with regards to care. They're moved around all the time. And it's a da- dangerous environment for those patients. OK, I, I just want to put some of this. Sorry, I totally to cut final point there. Is that. The the minister has never had a better opportunity at Cabinet. He has three former ministers for health, within the Cabinet, two of them holding the most senior positions of Taoiseach and Tanishda. They need to devise a capital infrastructure plan to build 5,000 additional beds immediately, and they need to come up with a workforce plan to ensure that we have nurses and doctors and other healthcare professionals okay. to deal with the current crisis that exists. All right, because I just want to put some of this to our panel.
2: Uh, here in the studio, Um, he mentioned there, Priscilla, the need to sort of create this capacity in hospitals to just create more hospital beds. But when Stephen Donnelly was briefing the Cabinet today and talked about this being a perfect storm and all of the
0: solutions, building capacity immediately wasn't one of the solutions, was it? No, and absolutely, that is the key issue uh, at play here, a capacity deficit, both from beds and from staffing. And it's been a long time coming. Um, During the last um, crisis that we had, the economic crisis, we put a recruitment moratorium in place and all the building plans went out the window. There was little capital investment. So we're paying the price that now because as um, the population has increased to over 5.1 million, it's also ageing and the needs are changing. There's more chronic disease. But we haven't been increasing our bed stock to try and meet that demand. And the HSE has pointed that out in recent years. Now, during the last two years during covid they have added nearly an extra thousand beds to the system, including 100 beds in Limerick. But it's made very little difference because it's just been eaten up by demand. Uh, And uh, as we heard tonight, a lot of this was predicted to happen this year. The HSE had projections about what would happen over Christmas and in January, though it has hit harder and faster than they could have predicted. And there's a real
2: knock-on impact, I think, which is worth noting here, which is and many of us will have first-hand experience of this, outpatient appointments being (coughs) cancelled, surgeries being cancelled, waiting lists getting longer, and uh, one of the guests mentioned there are people being advised not to attend perhaps A&Es and the knock-on impacts of that.
0: And that's going to continue to happen in the next couple of weeks, that they are going to have to cancel more elective surgeries and more outpatient appointments to try and deal with the the huge surge in respiratory illness and to try and find beds for patients who need them. Um, And obviously telling people to stay away from emergency departments, that can't work very long. Obviously they're trying to take on extra um, private capacity as well, but there hasn't been enough focus on really, I suppose, increasing the capacity and the staffing as well, because we are having trouble recruiting staff because they can claim they're hiring as many as they want, but trying to get those staff on board and then in <clears throat> 2006, when this was declared a national emergency, when there was less than 500 people on hospital beds, mm. it was declared a whole government problem, not just the Department of Health. And I think that's what we need, actually, at the moment as well, because housing is having an impact. I, I heard that there's a, a doctor starting in Tala tomorrow who couldn't secure accommodation, and there's desperate appeals on Twitter for that doctor mm. to, to find her somewhere to stay. So, again... it is is a perfect storm here, <clears throat> but... Listening to the minister
2: speaking on radio today, David Cullen, he said, Look, there isn't an emergency department across Europe, some of the best resource healthcare systems across Europe, that isn't under huge strain at the moment. And he mentioned Northern Ireland and the United Kingdom as two examples, where it's just as bad, if not worse, here in Ireland. So we're not alone. Is that a defence?
7: It's a cop-out. Obviously, rising presentations and rising COVID and flu cases has an impact on any healthcare system. I appreciate that. But the underinvestment and lack of capacity is exacerbating the problem. It should not be normal, Kira, mm-hmm. that patients are on hospital trolleys for days on end. We're hearing reports of people sleeping. In emergency departments on the floor many of them in pain older people over 75 left for days on end on hospital trolleys it has become normal it was entirely predictable we had a summer trolley crisis the alarm bells were going off mm-hmm. everybody knew that this was going to be a disaster and for decades We've had conversations and commitments and spoof, it has to be said, from some ministers for health that we would take a zero tolerance approach to people in hospital trolleys, and it has got worse. We don't have the beds. We don't have the staff. The minister was saying today that he wants consultants to come in and work over the weekends. Many of them are. They're broken. I've spoken to many nurses, doctors, consultants who are broken because of COVID. They're working huge amounts of overtime and they get very hurt when they hear that from the Minister for Health because they don't have the tools to do the job. I spoke to Anthony and others about ICT infrastructure, deficits there. We don't have beds, we don't have staff. And we're asking people on the front line to to operate with one hand tied behind their backs and patients are really suffering. So this is a watershed moment in my book. We can no longer tolerate what's happening in our healthcare system. We can no, uh, I don't think we can, we can tolerate spoofing from a Minister for Health. We need right. more urgency and more action.
2: Um, Martin Conway, uh, Ronan said at the beginning of this that he was embarrassed as a healthcare professional to have to offer this level of care to people in Ireland. Are you embarrassed, or to be a member of Fine Gael, that this is the current state of our healthcare?
3: Well, of course, uh, anybody would be embarrassed uh, to hear stories like Angel's story and to hear the many stories around the country of people who are uh, on trolleys and waiting. I come from the Midwest, which has uh, long suffered uh, with uh, UHL and the challenges and the difficulties uh, in UHL. But I don't think it's spoof or it's a cop-out to point out the fact uh, that this is an international problem. In Northern Ireland at 12 o'clock today, there were 408 people on trolleys waiting to be uh, admitted uh, to hospital. Uh, Sweden, Denmark, Finland, Norway, Austria, Germany, with some of the best healthcare systems in the world, uh, are under pressure now. So we're not alone, we're not unique. But I'm sorry, I just different. have to, Martin, no, if I can just we're, make we're the point if I can. We're not unique, so this we're not is different. This, it's not th- exceptional here in Ireland. That, that's it, that's it, Kira. Um, it, 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 anybody on a trolley it's not acceptable and the people out there listening who have loved ones on trolleys at the moment are right to be angry they're right to be uh, frustrated they're right to be concerned okay and
2: let's just let David back in Martin, here if we please
7: accept please. that we're never going to change anything we have to stop making excuses and I say that of all politicians it is simply <coughs> unacceptable that Angel had the experience that she had it's unacceptable the lack of care when we have a Minister for Health who conceded today that people are going to die people will die because we don't have the capacity in our hospitals that's the fault of politicians right, that's the Martin fault of the HSE there. Do you accept and that? yes there's pressures in every healthcare system but we have problems all year round oh. and hospital consultants and doctors and nurses every yeah. single day are okay, telling it me mean, let, Martin, let it's let a Martin... battle every Look, day. David,
3: David our healthcare system has gone through a global pandemic the same as every other country I have huge respect for
1: And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.
3: People who are working in the front line of our healthcare service up and down the country. Because of the work they did, because of the commitment they showed, we had one of the lowest fatalities in Europe. And I am absolutely confident that everybody working together. I see
2: a lot of those people tonight are thinking. I don't want to talk about what I did two yeah. years ago when I'm absolutely exhausted facing the type of situation and the type of environment that our healthcare workers are facing every single day at the moment. They don't want a slap on the back to say, well done yeah, for we, working look, so hard all, during we, Covid as well. Yeah, should
3: we get that? I mean, the reality is that the government, uh, uh, you know, there has been a huge lack of investment over the years, bearing in mind uh, that for, for the first five years that Fine Gael were in government, we had an economy to rescue. Uh, but in spite of all of that, we have had the biggest and highest investment in health, all right. 24 billion uh, Twenty four tw- okay. billion next year. <laughs> Again, it's not enough. I Martin want to see more. Me. You
2: have professors
3: sitting here a behind you
5: laughing at what you Can we, can we, can we just
3: get into solution mode? rather than actually
5: you know, having a party political broadcast. I mean, what are we but going so to do? We haven't right. heard well, from Anthony, can first of all, Can I just get
2: actually? a reaction here from yeah, Anthony to yeah. what we're currently seeing? we heard from David Cullenan. this is absolutely predictable.
8: Our, we, we've had the highest hospital bed occupancy rates in Europe for 30 years. Okay, that's dangerous, first of all. Secondly, yes, every health service in Europe is under stress. I was talking to some of Roland's French colleagues yesterday. They're having a difficult time. Nothing like we are. They're under stress, yes, it's difficult, yes. Things are not as good as they were, yes. But they're nothing like they are here. The reason they're in a mess in the North and the, and Britain is they did the same things we did, just later for once. So they did, they, cut, they slashed investment in social care and people piled up in hospitals. Perfect natural experiment. Solutions, we've had a solution, which is Sláinte Care which is now seven years running okay. and is, is coming towards the end of achieving most of its targets for year one. Okay. Now, that, that's a farce.
2: Okay, look, oh, uh, the- Andrew, neighbors are going to cut across you yep. to take a very quick break, but we're going to get back to some of the potential solutions and the current crisis in just a couple of minutes. Do stay with us. Welcome back. Priscilla, I want to come to you because I just want to talk about as solutions to the current crisis for those 838 people sitting on trolleys tonight and all of their family members who will be so concerned. What are the short-term solutions that this government are looking at?
0: Well, they're really asking for all hands on deck. As I said, we're likely to see cancellations of elective surgery in the next couple of weeks. We're asking staff who are supposed to be off to come back in. There are staff who are actually out sick at at the moment. Uh, The HSE has talked to the private hospitals and I believe it has close to 200 beds um, kind of from across the country there. um, Some capacity for respiratory illness. Um, So they are looking at those kind of short-term solutions to try and solve things this week. There's also going to be a lot more discharges. That is a problem as well that builds up over Christmas and um, patients not being discharged and then obviously having nursing homes to discharge them back to but the problem is if, if some patients uh, who are elderly have a COVID-19 they can't be discharged back into their nursing home mm-hmm. uh, and as we've heard with this overcrowding there is quite a high risk of, of getting viruses while in hospital. We've heard about this I mean, every single year since I've been covering the health Mm -hmm. crisis,
2: the number of people waiting to be discharged in in our hospitals. I think it's about 600 at the moment, and yet there's 1,000 beds available in private nursing homes. So where's the issue?
0: Yeah, this is something we do see every winter. We're also promised extra bed with the the winter plan every year. Um, and also, they often open too late and then they, up, they close then in the springtime. So, again, we knew that this problem was going to happen. We had predicted a lot of the, the crisis. And uh, we did hear that the problem is happening in the UK and in Northern Ireland. But, again, uh, that's because of uh, record underinvestment in those healthcare systems as well. And if you look at Europe, their issue is going to be very temporary literally in the next week or two, you're going to see a big change there because they have the capacity. We're at full capacity. We always are. We don't we have, have that extra to 30 capacity. 30 years as in,
7: in the yeah. very short and
2: term. And you mentioned, sorry to cut across you, uh, just want to go back to uh, Martin. Uh, Priscilla mentioned this winter plan that we hear about uh, every year, an extra investment that went in to deal with this predicted uh, increase in cases. Has that completely failed
3: Denmark? Now, look, to be quite frank about it, I am not a big fan of this annual winter plan. I think it should be some, it should be uh, far different than that. It should be a rolling targeted plan uh, because, you know, whatever targets are set in a over the last number of years, haven't been achieved. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they weren't you're, you're, achieved this year <clears throat> no, either,
2: were they? I think they were hoping absolutely not. 50 and consultants <throat> in A&E and I think 20 are in transit, whatever no, that means.
3: To be quite frank about it, you announce a winter plan, September, October, uh, you expect to put consultants in place in a month or six weeks, two yeah. months. It just doesn't happen. So I think we probably are going to have to to mature in terms of how we approach that and look at multi-annual planning. So you'd accept to, then
2: your uh, own your own party's approach to this of publishing uh, well, these winter plans well, every year. It's kind of paying lip service you, a bit to the problem,
3: no, is I, like David, I'm on the health committee. We engage on a forensic basis regularly with the HSE. We've engaged last, I think it was October or November on the winter plan. Uh, I had no belief back then that the targets were going to be met. And uh, the targets haven't been met. And there's no point in the targets being met next March because the winter is over at that stage. So I think we uh, uh, have to look at how we're going to approach this kind of targeted measures uh, on a winter basis and do it on a multi-annual basis. And I think people would prefer to see that type of approach because... Uh, you will uh, uh, succeed, in my view, in retaining professionals if you do the winter, the in, winter in, in, plan in a is window dressing. targeted
7: way. It's nothing more than window dressing because the HSC told the Rocktas Health Committee most of the targets, including hiring fifty-one consultants, was not going to happen in the very short term. Right now, the emergency is the next couple of months, and obviously we have to marshal all resources, public and private, into our emergency departments. Okay. And yes, it's
8: all happening. Is there anything,
3: Anthony,
2: that yeah. the government could be doing now in the short? short term, to deal with this crisis the, the that very, they're not doing. The
8: very quick stuff is what Priscilla and the Senator have, have outlined, and the Deputy, which is cancel everything else and fix this. Slightly longer term, invest in social care. You can train social care people quickly in large numbers.
2: And yet, sorry, i a question. You talk about investment, and I saw Dan O'Brien, yeah. the economist that many of our viewers will be um, familiar with, talking about the investment in our healthcare system we have, per capita, some of the biggest expenditure on health uh, across Europe, yeah. and it's not making it's a not blind bit one of,
8: one of difference. It's not about
2: spending.
5: Well, that's some of it, but we also have had historically the lowest spend per capita for quite some time, over mm. 20 years, which has built up the problem. But I don't think the spend is always strategic. Um, mm. We do need a number of solutions. I'll give you a simple solution. For example, there's many people waiting in our hospitals... Uh, some patients myself uh, and everybody has who are waiting several months in our acute hospitals. Mm. Now why does this happen? It happens because there is no fiscal responsibility on our social care services to take ownership of that. So the acute hospital Mm. carries the burden. So one of the simple things you could do, and I think we're all agreed with this when when we're talking offline, we need to reinvent all our structures that are patient-centered. But one of the things that needs to happen is that once patients are finished their acute care episode, they then become the responsibility of social care. And social care are given a budget, they're given a timeline to which to respond to, and if they don't respond, someone is fiscally responsible and social care budget gets fined. Kira, can and I just...
2: Look, look, I'm just conscious, we have this waiting list action plan, and we see in the Irish Times today, mm. you know, a letter from the Secretary-General of the Department of Health saying that despite 350-odd million being put in to the HSC to try and tackle waiting lists last year... There is no perspective. But Kira, we have That's we have we have says. enough
7: plans that could wallpaper this room ten times over. We've had how many plans in relation to reducing waiting lists? Promises that people wouldn't be on trolleys. We have to use this moment now and this time of crisis to say enough is enough. Okay, and let does me feel just, if I, it just make, if I can just make if I can I want to talk about solutions. Yeah, time. but I want to talk about because you're asking for solutions. We have to integrate our healthcare systems better. We don't have a joined-up approach between primary care GPs and hospitals. We don't have the capacity, obviously we don't have the beds. If you talk to any hospital consultant, doctor or nurse, it isn't pay is a number one issue. They don't have the tools to do the job. There's moral injury on those frontline workers, where the responsibility is put on their shoulders and they're operating with one hand literally tied behind their backs. They don't have diagnostic capacity. We have to properly resource our public health system. We have to give those healthcare professionals the tools to do the job. And we have to say, no longer are we going to accept the indignity, the way patients are treated. And to get to a point where a Minister for Health accepts people will die, it is just... Absolutely okay. infuriating and right in unacceptable.
3: No, Kira, no, look at the people looking, watching in here tonight. Want immediate solutions. The one immediate solution is to requisition more private hospital beds. Uh, I'm quite disappointed that all the HSE have uh, managed to secure so far is 200 during COVID. There was thousands of private beds. Granted, only 40% of them were used, but at least they were there. So I think the HSC have a, a duty to immediately requisition hundreds of more beds uh, to deal with this over the coming days and weeks. But, but was was no suppose the HSA,
2: I mean, suppose, in fairness to the HSC, sorry, in fairness to the HSC, their point is there's no point requising thousands of private beds like we did during COVID for only. 40% of them to be used and 60% of them to lie yeah, well, would, idle when they I, could I, be I would, put to would other work. I prefer
3: workers. to see the beds requisitioned and not used than the situation that exists down in Limerick Hospital tonight where there are 72 people in trallies. We're comparing ourselves and Ireland this year.
2: I just want to go back to uh, Tony on Skype. I think a lot of people at home watching tonight talking about plans and further investments will be pulling their hair out, Tony, because there can be times when you look at the HSC and look at the investment and think it feels like a bit of just a a money pit, a, a black hole where money disappears?
6: No, well, I think that's a commentary I think that's unhelpful. I think if you invest in nurses, invest in doctors and in frontline healthcare workers, you'll see a dividend and they are very good value for money. Um, I think we have to realise, HICWA said after an investigation into Tala E.D. in um, 2012 that no patient should be looked after in an inappropriate space. Yet we have hundreds of patients tonight on trolleys, on chairs within emergency departments. David talked about reports. We've had enough reports. We have the capacity report that says we need to build additional beds. Build the beds. So we have also workforce reports that says we need to recruit additional nurses, additional doctors, et cetera. And I'm talking about thousands of additional nurses and doctors and other healthcare professionals. professionals. will start putting the infrastructure in, increase the undergraduate places for doctors, for nurses, for others, improve the pathways into those so that we can ensure that we have the workforce to look after these patients. What we have currently is, you know, it is attitudes and commentary that has allowed, allowed this situation to develop. What we have is currently statewide abuse of patients within our emergency departments. It is not fair to those patients. It's inhumane. It's undignified. And HICWA have backed this up in a report they did on emergency departments before Christmas. It's not acceptable. So we need a government-wide response to this crisis and to the crisis that exists within our healthcare system. And I think, you know, we've made a number of asks. in the next number of weeks, everything else needs to be canceled. The focus has to be in emergency departments. We've called for the introduction of mandatory mask wearing. Well, I, to be honest, the political stomach isn't there to do that, but we've called upon it because it may impact upon and stop the spread of the virus. It probably should have been done earlier. Right. But the CMO um, in, but fairness, I think it's in fairness, in now. In now.
2: the CMO has said that she would not recommend yeah. mandated mask wearing. The CMO no, provides
6: advice no, to the minister. To it's up to the, no, the minister no. to make the call and make the decision with regards to that issue. And finally, they let's let's get round the table now and say a government wide response build the infrastructure we need to see the plans produced. They're talking about three elective hospitals for years. We need to, we, we need now to have real plans to increase the bed capacity. And we need a manpower plan for the next number of years to ensure that we have the nurses and the doctors on the front line. Or else, Kira, I will be back talking about this again in a few months' time, in a year's time, in 10 years' time. That would be a damning <laughs> indictment on the government and the HSE. Let and me just for go back to my HSC panel now, Tony. Totally. Sorry to cut across to you. Up. I'm just short
2: of time here. Anthony, Do you think there should be a mask mandate again at this point? Yes. Yes.
8: Absolutely, yes. Today.
2: What difference would it make in your opinion?
8: Reduce transmission of viruses. We need to do everything we can to ease the pressures right now. There's a whole bunch of stuff we need to do in the longer run, but right now we need to make space in the hospitals and we need to ease the pressure of infectious disease in the community. And we do that by vaccination and wearing masks full stop. Would you agree with that,
3: Martin? I I have huge uh, respect for uh, Anthony Staines and the work he has done. But we in this country have a chief medical officer who gives the government public health advice. And if the government don't Take the, uh, uh, implement the public health advice that comes from the chief medical officer when well, the government has criticised. And the chief medical officer has recommended against a mandatory uh, mask-wearing policy. That said, Kira, right. there's nothing whatsoever stopping the general public in areas of congestion and public transport wearing masks. Many do, and I would encourage many more to do so. And right. I would also yep. encourage many more to take the vaccine to take the COVID vaccine and take the flu vaccine because the numbers taking the vaccines are not at the level they should be.
2: And is that the government's responsibility? Is that the government's fault that those numbers aren't where they should be? Well, there, Should there, that there, not have been communicated more clearly well, prior there, to this crisis? Well,
3: there is significant uh, public information campaigns uh, that took place before Christmas. It, it's, I think the flu vaccine is something like 70%. It needs to be a lot higher than okay. that.
2: Okay. I just want to give the final word um, to you, um, Professor, because I'm conscious that the Minister also said that the worst is yet to come. The situation Mm. isn't going to improve anytime soon in our hospitals. Would you agree?
5: Oh, yeah, I'd say that's true. And, you know, the Minister has called for all hands on deck and senior decision-making. You get that trotted out every time. There's there's always the insinuation or part of the problem is that the consultants aren't in making decisions. But in reality, it's not just about the consultants being there. They're there. I mean, there was six of us there this morning in the emergency department. But, you you know, if you come in at the weekends or out of hours, you need the admin staff, you need the diagnostics, you need the nursing staff, and you need the beds to look after people, to examine people, to make a diagnosis. I do think, and I agree, we talked offline, I think the whole health service needs to be restructured. We have too many silos of separate silos of strategy and we need to rebuild our health service around the patient. And my last comment is that, and I know that there are health services under stress in Northern Ireland and England, NHS. First of all, it wouldn't be aping the NHS if I were us. But, you know, just because other countries are struggling doesn't mean that we can't do better. We must do better.
2: All right, look, we're going to leave it there. My thanks to all of our panels and to all of our guests uh, this evening. After the break, record temperatures melting snow on our ski slopes. John Gibbons joins us with more. Stay with us. France's famed ski slopes have been forced to close because they are missing one very important thing, the snow. With Europe experiencing an unseasonably warm start to the year, is this a sign of things to come? Well, joining me now is journalist John Gibbons for the latest on this and some of the other extreme weather events we've been experiencing this winter. Uh, John, I think maybe March, normally you'd think "Mm, the snow would be questionable if you went skiing around March, not guaranteed. But January, I think for anybody who's skied, you would... Assume it was guaranteed. Not anymore?
9: Yeah, that's the case, Kira. Uh, what we're seeing, what we've just experienced in, across Europe, is uh, probably the most extreme climatological event that has ever been recorded in Europe. Now, if I can take your listeners back to uh, 2022, to the summer, Europe had its hottest summer in five. Hundred years, at least five hundred years. So we've gone basically from extreme summertime temperatures in Europe to now an absolutely extreme heatwave event uh, that, that swept across uh, Europe. Now, to to I'm get us looking
2: at footage now of ski lifts, ski chairs. I mean, you would expect this is half of. Uh, France's ski resorts. You expect those to be covered in snow and you just see there's none. It's melted away because it's simply too warm, you're saying, on the continent at the moment.
9: That's right. Well, we know right, right around the world uh, glaciers are in full retreat. So we know, for example, that uh, the Greenland ice pack is, is losing hundreds of billions of tons of, of ice every year. Uh, and glaciers, land-based glaciers, say in, in, in the Himalayas, in Europe, they're all in retreat. So it's to be expected, therefore, that obviously this is going to play itself out in terms of the retreat of uh, ski slopes. Now, what we know now in Europe is pretty much all the skiing below about 2,000 metres is gone. We have temperatures above freezing 2,000 metres above sea level, which is really absolutely amazing. And remember, well, what, this,
2: what should they be? What would you expect them to be?
9: Well, at this time of the year, you would, you would expect those temperatures to be at 2,000 metres in Central Europe. Uh, you'd expect those temperatures to be well below zero. Maybe it could be minus five, it could be down to minus 10, minus 15. Uh, that would be totally normal. But for example, during the, 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 the recent heat wave, um, Poland experienced its hottest ever January moment before daybreak on the 1st of January. So before the sun came out, Poland experienced its hottest January day in recorded history. Which so was
2: what temperature?
9: It was I think it was 19 degrees. It, it rose to 19 degrees. This is Poland in cold central Europe hitting 19 degrees centigrade on the 1st of January. So on the first day of 2023, we're seeing heat records that have never that have stood for hundreds of years. And it's important to understand, in Europe, we have reliable instrumental heat records going back and temperature records going back hundreds of years. So so we can be very confident about the accuracy of these.
2: Uh, and the flip side of this, with these awful scenes we saw across America in the week coming up to uh, Christmas Day, uh, words like bomb, cyclone, um, I think we're looking there at just the snowstorms that people right across the states were experiencing. It was it was phenomenal,
9: and it ground the country to a halt. That's right. Um, what happened essentially there was the jet stream, which is this high altitude, uh, if you like, current of, of, of air, fast-moving current of air, uh, that wobbled and it moved down from the Arctic and it brought with it Arctic conditions into North America. Now, the, the wobbliness, if we can use that term, of the jet stream is a characteristic of global warming. It's a, it's a signature of global warming. What's happening essentially is the Arctic region is heating at three times the rate of the rest of the world, and and essentially the jet stream, if you like, is held in its position, be- between the cold of the Arctic and the heat of the lower latitudes, as that that begins to change, the relationship between those begins, begins to change. Begins to wobble as you say. Begins to wobble. Essentially, what you're getting is dramatic movements up and down. Of the jet stream, so when the jet stream pulses downwards, it drags Arctic air and pulses it over North America. In other situations, the jet jet stream is pulled upwards, as we've seen in recent times. So, so ironically, the heat wave that we're just experiencing in Europe is the opposite. Think of it as the other side of that wave. One part dips down and pulls down cold weather; the other part drags up and pulls up warm weather. And unfortunately, what we're seeing with these, the increased waviness of the jet stream is causing climate destabilisation and it's and it's causing extreme weather events.
2: And do you think we'll see more of that this year and in the near future?
9: Unfortunately, Kira, it's a racing certainty because the big difference between today and this time last year is that there's 50 billion tonnes of additional carbon dioxide and methane emissions in our global atmosphere. Uh,
2: I'm just...
9: Sorry to cut across you,
2: I'm just conscious of time. I know there'll be people talking about New Year's resolutions. I know I was thinking it myself. What can I do as an individual? You know, how can I contribute to this to make a change? Can I?
9: I think we can. I mean, for example, we know as individuals, probably the, the highest single impact thing we can do as an individual is to fly, especially long haul flying, it is massive carbon emissions. And remember, uh, 80% of the world's population have never set foot on an aircraft and will never set foot. So if you've been on a flight, you're already in part of the world's elite, whether you like it or not. That's one step. Uh, Another step obviously is, dietary shift. We need to move away from a meat-based diet towards a plant-based diet. Not everybody wants to hear that, especially right. here in Ireland. And the third thing, and Kira, to me, the most important thing is we need to put pressure on our politicians to act up on climate change, to step up. And we also, we in the media, we need to do an awful lot better. Uh, we've, we've been remiss. Uh, the EPA, for example, published a survey late last year, and they found that that's one in three members of the Irish public, describe themselves as alarmed about the climate emergency, yet we're not seeing it getting the kind of serious attention either among our politicians or indeed in the media. And That's why I'm delighted that we're here discussing it this evening.
2: And we'll discuss it much more in this programme throughout 2023. John Gibbons, thank you as always. That's it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. We'll be back here tomorrow night at 10pm. See you then.